0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music
1: and more. We need to see truth-telling happen in this country before we can progress with reconciliation because the fundamental understanding of what has happened is still not there. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government... It was a green
2: slide.
0: Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent.
1: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
2: Hello and welcome to this special post referendum edition of The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne, and I'm
0: Frank Kelly on the Gadigal Land of the Eora Nation in Sydney. And this is a special edition of The Party Room following that overwhelming defeat of the referendum on the Voice to Parliament. Soon we're going to be joined by ABC political reporter Dana Morse. She's a proud Palawa Plungamarana woman. Federal Parliament resumes today. What will this referendum defeat mean politically for the Prime Minister and for the opposition leader, Peter Dutton? And what will it mean for Indigenous policy going forward? Now the notion of a consultative process called The Voice is dead. How will governments better address the entrenched disadvantage in Indigenous Australia? And how will our leaders bring the country together again after such a divisive debate? and resounding defeat. We'll discuss all that with Dana shortly. But first, the result. The referendum to enshrine recognition of First Nations people into the Constitution in the form of the voice was rejected by more than 60% of the nation. Here's how the political leaders responded to that vote.
1: This moment of disagreement does not define us and it will not divide us. We are not yes voters or no voters. We are all Australians. And it is as Australians, together, that we must take our country beyond this debate without forgetting why we had it in the first place. The Coalition, like all Australians, wants to see Indigenous disadvantage addressed. We just disagree on the voice being the solution. And while yes and no voters may hold differences of opinion, these opinions of difference do not diminish our love for our country or our regard for each other. This is the referendum that Australia did not need to have.
0: Well, PK, after months, in fact, for many years of campaigning for the voice to parliament, and we've been considering it here on the podcast and in the political debate for months and months now, it took just over an
2: hour for the country to say, no, we don't want it. What happened? There are so many things that led to this moment, I think, Fran, but I'll give you my take. I think overwhelmingly what killed this referendum is the moment that the Nationals stood up before uh, we even had a final declaration of, of the words and opposed the referendum. That was, in my view, a defining political moment that meant that this referendum had to break every single rule of history. And guess what? It didn't. I think the Prime Minister made a decision which I do see personally as one of principle but not good politics. And I'll explain what I mean. The principle is Indigenous Australians, after going through a a very lengthy consultative process came up with what was the most consensus-based proposition, and that's the Uluru statement from the heart. And I say the most. Of course there was disagreement among some Indigenous Australians who did not want that. Of course, inevitably. But as anyone who knows about Indigenous affairs would know, in fact it was the most unified position in 2017 that we'd seen for a long time. And so the Prime Minister honoured a promise. And I think the politics did not match the promise and the times. But he went ahead with it. And some people will criticise him for that. They're entitled to. Others will see it as, as principled and the right decision. That is not for me to determine. But as soon as the Nationals and then the Liberals after what I considered to be a, a dance about detail. Um, and, and yes, the detail of exactly what that bill would look like wasn't provided. Um, that certainly created confusion 100%. But let's not forget that ultimately the No campaign did not just run on detail. It said that it would be racially divisive. So let's let's be clear here. If all of the detail had been provided and a bill had been tabled, Would it have changed that central argument from the No campaign that it would create racial division because it was an Indigenous-only voice? I think we know that it wouldn't have. So... Um, let's not get hoodwinked by the detail line because they landed on the most potent line that this would create racial division and clearly it stuck and it worked. So I think what happened is No ended up being successful in prosecuting this potent line, particularly at a time where Australians, we know for a fact, are suffering with the cost of living crisis. If you look at the demographics which you're about to get into, we know overwhelmingly people uh, you know, scrambling with many jobs on lower incomes were more likely to vote no, um, and ultimately. And I'm going to leave before we go into the demographics with this point because it's an important one. We were asking people to vote on something when so many people have no lived experience of having relationships or knowing Aboriginal Australia, and I. On a personal note, I find that the most heartbreaking part of this story, heartbreaking because Indigenous Australians are not known to so many other Australians, whether they be white or migrant. And and that, to me, is the biggest wound of our country because without those face-to-face relationships like we had in the gay community, I know so many people voted yes in that postal survey because they cared about me and my partner and my kids. I know they did that because they told me. But if you don't have that lived experience of feeling that empathy, then you are, are unlikely to be moved by an emotive campaign. And so we've seen it go down apart from the ACT, and I'm not terribly surprised by the result at all, but I do think it's going to lead to some significant soul searching.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right and you're right. At the heart of this lies the fact that there is such a disconnection between most Australians and the first Australians and this perhaps was going to be the first step of mending that by recognising First Nations people in the constitution. There is no reference to the traditional owners, the first owners of this country, the people who have been here living here continuously, the civilisation since 65,000 years. There's not recognised in our constitution, our founding document. That is still something that needs to be corrected in my view or needs to be addressed in my view. Um, but the reality of that is lived out in our everyday lives when most of us don't have any contact with Indigenous Australians, have never met one, don't know one, and then we are, you know, Vulnerable, I suppose, to the stereotypes. Certainly uh, um, some Indigenous Australians I've spoken to since this result feel that they have been overwhelmingly and resoundingly rejected. That's the quote from one, rejected by the Australian people. But let's whiz through the results because it's a more than 60% vote for no at this moment in the count. The count's still not finished, but it's all over. Only the ACT voted yes, as you said. In Queensland, WA and South Australia, the yes vote was in the 30s. The inner cities of our capital cities voted overwhelmingly Yes, the regions and the outer suburbs said no. That's a divide we know exists. It comes through in a lot of policy areas and it came through on referendum night. Only one coalition seat in the country, the seat of Bradfield in New South Wales, voted yes in this referendum. All the teal seats voted yes. So those are the seats that were until the last election Liberal Heartland voted yes. Labor voters didn't vote with their leader. Anthony Albanese's seat of Grainler had one of the highest yes votes in the country, but 14 Labor ministers saw their electorate's vote strongly no. Indigenous Australians, though, did vote yes. Counting in the remote booths and remote areas show overwhelming support for yes in Hopevale in the Queensland seat of Leichhardt. 75.4% of people voted yes. On Thursday Island, 70% yes. In the seat of Kennedy, Mornington Island voted 77% yes. And in the Northern Territory, the remote and mobile voting booths, which were operated by the AEC, returned a 74% yes vote. So, PK, on the night of the referendum result, Senator Nampajimpa Price accused the Yes campaign of misinformation with their constant repeating of the fact that 80% of Indigenous Australians supported the voice. Those, Those figures that we've now seen suggest there was a clear majority, maybe not 80%, but certainly a majority of Indigenous Australians did want this referendum to get up.
2: Yeah, and of course there's there's urban Indigenous Australians where we can't really come to the conclusions as clearly. So, you know, we want to be strictly fact-based. So there's different stories. But yes, in the remote areas, overwhelmingly, absolutely they voted yes. And I do think that's an important part of the story. What's also an important part of the story is this goes back to the, I think, very beautiful analogy that Noel Pearson first phrased, which is the elephant and the mouse. So we have here the elephant, which is the non-Indigenous Australia, and then the mouse the mouse in those areas overwhelmingly saying they want a voice and then the elephant, that's us. Um, Lots of Indigenous people listen to this podcast. I know some of them. Hi, guys. But us being the non-Indigenous part of Australia, that part of Australia voting no largely, right? So when you look at the figures, and there's going to be a lot of analysis here about the kind of results we've seen, seat by seat, booth by booth, the yes vote, if you look at it, has been achieved in places where voters have a bachelor's degree or have better than average wages, Fran, right? Now, this goes to the to the No campaign and also the right wing of politics, um, their narrative of the insiders and the outsiders, yeah, the elites and the non-elites. I think there's a bigger story to tell here, though, about education and where you find educated people who know, if, if you've got a bachelor's degree, chances are you know something about government, our structures, you, you, you've taken an interest in the kind of way these things happen, not because you're better, but just because you've got the opportunity to have done that. Just to be clear, like I'm not judging people's um, achievements. It's just you've been able to find out lots of information that perhaps has led you to come to a different conclusion. Um, and so this huge chasm, because it is in our electorate, is a big one, I think, about you know who and where uh, remote Indigenous Australians kind of probably get it because they live it. And then where people have been educated, they've come to different conclusions. And then you get a whole swathe of people working very hard, can I say, and probably having very little time to focus on reading constitutions or proposals or and making pretty quick on the hop decisions, where I do think quick social media campaigns probably have had a big impact. That's sort of the consumption. And so I think that is the bigger part of the demographic story. Um, And the Yes campaign didn't get to those people. It didn't get to the people in casual employment with three jobs. Um, Clearly, those people have not had that kind of access to that information. You know, PK,
0: I did national talk back the morning after on ABC Radio across the country and a lot of no voters ran in. And uh, I remember one woman ringing in and saying, look... I'm educated. This is not about me being uneducated. I'm educated. I just think the question was wrong. I didn't think the proposal was right. I didn't think it was well explained. And I don't want you saying that it's because I'm educated that I voted no. So that's a a sort of a sentiment that struck me on the talkback calls, um, which goes really to, and you've sort of referred to this, Anthony Albanese's management of this, the political handling of this. We'll be speaking about this more with Dana in a minute. But you know, once it was clear there was not bipartisan support. Should he have persevered or should he have managed it differently? There's criticism from some of his own backbench this morning. Michael Freelander from the Labour seat of MacArthur says caucus should have been involved more. You know, there wasn't enough uh, acknowledgement of the fact that people are diverted by cost of living pressures, that it wasn't handled well. You know, what responsibility does the Prime Minister, what did he get wrong here, do you think?
2: I think the prime minister um, certainly misread the country and the mood. He also, I think, thought he could push through on the basis of um, like this positive, uplifting message. Mm. They left a too long a vacuum. I mean, most of 2023 was spent with the opposition leader being able to get his lines up. They were potent lines. They absolutely landed. In so many places across the country, they were the ones being repeated. Well, also, I mean, I mean can it you wasn't... think
0: of the PM's lines? Well, no, that's true, um, except it was a generous offer and we, we should accept the hand that's been offered to us, was his line, which, as you say, was appealing to the sort of better angels of our nature. But I think. But also was... the
2: rusted on people, the yeah.
0: people who got it. That's who
2: who heard that message, people who were already voting yes.
0: But I think also the strategic failure was at the campaign level because it wasn't just Peter Dutton with those messages. The no campaign very early was getting those messages out across social media. The yes campaign was slow to start. It didn't fill the vacuum. It allowed those messages to take hold in people's minds and hearts and people made up their minds, I think. I think this vote showed us people had made up their minds very firmly because all the sort of the good signs that the yes campaigners were saying they were picking up and the good vibes in the last few weeks seemed to amount to nothing when that vote came down. People had made up their minds and I think they'd perhaps done it a long time ago.
2: Now, this idea for the voice came from the Uluru Statement from the heart and the Indigenous leadership that advocated for it are clearly now feeling deeply hurt and bruised Um, and I I think anyone would understand that right they're not talking about the result yet a week of silence they've declared they declared that on Saturday night Um, and they're, they're obviously going to regroup and figure out what to say what to do all of that all of the the stock take of any campaign but also more broadly they have to go back to their people and work this out Former Olympian and former Labor Senator Nova Paris was on SBS when the results rolled in and, and here was her heartbreak.
1: As it sits now, it's, it's gut-wrenching and makes me sick. And it's, it's a really sad indictment. Like, the disadvantage of our people, the suffering in the lucky country, 2023, it is disgusting. in mm-hmm. Australia has pulled the shutters down and said, we choose not to see you, we choose not to hear
0: you. PK, the heartbreak of Nova Paris there on show for the nation as the results came in, but you know, you and I have both spoken to some of the Indigenous leaders who have been involved in this process for so long. We're talking people like you know, Megan Davis, Pat Anderson, Noel Pearson, Marcia Langton, all, all those people. Where does this leave them and their advocacy?
2: Oh, that is that is a heartbreaking question, actually, I find, Fran, just the level of work that these people have put in. And they're not politicians, but they do care very much about lifting their people and um, reconciling this country. And so I do think we're going to see some of those people moving on from, from this kind of advocacy. Doesn't mean you'll never hear from them, but on this piece of work on constitutional recognition and reconciliation. I think they will fall silent beyond this week. And whether you're a fan or not of some of these people, um, I think it's really sad that They will never see in their lifetime substantive reform when it comes to Indigenous affairs. And we all have to have a think about where that leaves us. Does it make us a poorer country? I think to have these giant intellects leave the public sphere or at least reduce their impact in the public sphere is really sad. Yeah, they've been at it
0: for decades. I mean, I went and remember when Noel Pearson emerged on the national scene during the Mabo debates and um, the working group there that Paul Keating got together, and he sort of really stood out as an articulate. Powerful communicator for his people, and he's been on that stage ever since. As has all of them, you know. New leaders have emerged through this. Dean Parkin has emerged. Thomas Mayo has emerged through this process. Um, Rachel Perkins stood up through this process. Um, so there, it is not the end of individual advocacy, but is perhaps going to see a changing of the guard on this. On this note, shall we
2: bring in Dana? Let's do it. <laughs> Dana Morse is a political reporter and she joins us from Gadigal land in Sydney. Welcome to the party room, Dana. Thanks for having me.
0: Dana, we've been talking a little bit about what this means for the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, but how do you see this playing out politically now, this referendum defeat?
1: I actually think this won't be too damaging, politically speaking, for our Anthony Albanese. I'm sure that the opposition will be keen to position it that way. Uh, but the politics around this is really interesting when you dig down into that vote count. Sure, Labor has a lot of soul-searching to do on this and they need to really seriously address that more than half of Labor's... Labour electorates across the country did not vote yes. So they had an extreme failure to communicate with their base. But also when it comes to the the prospect of the opposition getting elected at the next election, well, all of the Teal candidates uh, brought their electorates along with them in a yes vote. So they're not moving back towards the Liberal Party at all. And Peter Dutton needs those seats for re-election. So I don't think it's going to be too politically costly for Anthony Albanese, but he's certainly going to wear it in question time. One... One
2: group, it's very politically costly for, though, are the people very passionate about this change, the Indigenous people who have been fighting for this. Peter Dutton was quick off the blocks in Canberra today. We're recording on a Monday morning, talking about the Coalition's Indigenous policy
1: going forward. Here he is. All of our policy, uh, obviously, as I said on Saturday night, uh, is going to be reviewed in the process uh, that Karen and Jacinta will lead now. Uh, I think that's important, but I think it's clear that the Australian public uh, is probably over... Uh, the referendum process uh, for some time.
2: Okay, Dana, that sounds like his promise made during the election for another referendum, which was just on uh, recognition alone, is off the table. Does this mean the 15-year project of constitutional recognition is now dead?
1: I think it's very likely that there will be no political will to pursue constitutional recognition by either of the parties. In terms of Peter Dutton, I mean, when does a walk back become a backflip? He's obviously going to allow himself to be led by Jacinta Numpajimpa-Price and Karen Little on this. Jacinta Numpajimpa-Price has come out this morning as well and said that she thinks the whole Uluru statement is dead and she's trying to pour cold water on any potential progress around a makarata Commission for truth-telling and treaty. So... If that's where we're at, if we're talking about walking away from this statement altogether, then I can't see anyone having the political capital or the political will to pursue constitutional recognition. And also, it's not what Indigenous people want. We've been told time and again that the reason why they wanted a constitutionally enshrined voice is because they wanted something, not just words in the constitution. They wanted some kind of power that went with that.
0: But that request from Indigenous Australians has been roundly repudiated from the country, so the nation said no to that. Senator Nambajimpa-Price, as you say, she's emerged as a a significant political figure, I think, after this campaign. Let's just hear Senator Price on referendum night.
1: The Australian people have voted, overwhelmingly uh, say no to this referendum. They've said no to division within our constitution along the lines of race. They've said no to the gaslighting, to the bullying, to the manipulation. They have said no to grievance uh, and, and, and the push from activists to suggest that we are a racist country when we are absolutely not a racist country.
0: That was a very political response from Senator Price on referendum night and I think, you know, with a sentiment that I think a lot of Australians relate to and certainly want to hear that we are not a racist country. Most of the people who voted no don't think they're racist. You know, I did talk back nationally on Sunday morning, a lot of no voters ringing in with that message saying they were just opposed to the, the voice, they didn't understand it, they thought the referendum was lacked detail, you know, that, that they were at pains to say that. But, um, But as I say, Senator uh, Nampajimpa Price there really not taking a step back at all. If she's moving already onto treaty and Makarata, she's not mucking around here. Where does this line up, if you like, what has been the Indigenous leadership, I think broadly of this country and the emerging leadership here that we heard Peter Dutton elevating there of Senator Little and Senator Nampajimpa Price and to some extent Warren Mundine, though he will be out of step with her on treaty, you would think?
1: Well, I think... When it comes to Senator Numpajimpa-Price, of course she's going to make a political statement like that because she needs to continue to appeal to the electorate. Now, we know that she positioned herself as saying that this is not what her community wanted, that this is not what remote communities wanted. But in fact, when you look at the numbers, remote communities overwhelmingly voted in favour of the voice. So... It is uh, certainly to say that Jacinta Price is now at odds with the people that she claims to represent and the people who probably, if the voice had gone the way uh, that the government had proposed it and the way that people like Tom Kalmer and Marcia Langton had laid out, would have benefited those remote communities the most. So she needs to uh, broaden her appeal beyond the remote communities that she and, and Indigenous people. She needs to continue to appeal to a broader Australian electorate. But to your point around uh, racism and uh, whether or not people voting no were racist and that people don't want to think of Australia as a racist country. I think we have to be very careful how we how we talk about perceptions of racism in this country because it is not up to the oppressor to decide whether the oppressed uh, how they are labeling them. So if if you are an indigenous person in this country who has experienced racism as a result of a no vote it is very difficult to then reconcile the day after and say people who voted no are not racist. Have you spoken to many of
0: the Indigenous leaderships? You know, they've taken a step back. Pika and I have uh, already mentioned that they've you know, said they're going to be off the grid basically for a week while they while grieve and consider what this all means, the implications of this. Have you spoken to many Indigenous leaders?
1: I've spoken to the people within my community and the people that are are happy to take my calls right now. It's the line that we walk as Indigenous people and also journalists that sometimes people don't want to discuss things with you. So I've been respecting that call for silence uh, among many of the people behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But it's important to note there as well that that's not what all Indigenous people want. There are a few people out there saying, now is not the time for silence, now is the time to hear us roar. Uh, so there's even differing views there, but I totally understand from the Uluru statement people and the, and the S23 people, they need to take some time. They need to regroup and reconsider before they come out and become answerable to questions about how this failed and what role their campaign played in it.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Look, the big, the big question, obviously, is now going to be what's the way forward for Indigenous policy in this country? On Saturday night, Indigenous leader and obviously the co-author of what was um, a description of what a voice would look like, Professor Marcia Langton, was on SBS and she was pretty pessimistic about the future. It's very clear that reconciliation is dead. A majority of Australians have said no to an invitation from Indigenous Australia with a minimal proposition uh, to give us a, a bare say in matters that affect our lives. That's Marcia Langton's view of where we're at right now as of, you know, the vote coming in. We've had a national conversation about Indigenous disadvantage as a result of this, although so many other things were raised. Linda Burney, Anthony Albanese, Peter Dutton, also Maura Mundine from the No Side all say reconciliation is not dead and it can't be for the future of the country. But as we look right now in this moment of time, how do we reconcile what is an obviously broken? Um, country for many people, a real disparity on how people view these things and some, some really deep wounds for Indigenous Australia.
1: I think we need to reckon as a country with what actually is reconciliation. And I, I think back to the words of the late great Yunapingu. He wrote in 2008 that Uh, treaty had become reconciliation and there can be no reconciliation without justice and we still have not had justice in this country for a lifetime of wrongs committed against Indigenous Australians and in a way reconciliation is a watering down of what is actually an extremely robust proposal in creating a treaty. I also think and we talk about this with treaty as well that it's up to essentially individual nations need to come to their treaty agreements with the states the territories and eventually the commonwealth Reconciliation, if we think about that in terms of treaty, is an individual choice. It is not up for politicians to say that reconciliation is continuing or not. This is up to Aboriginal people. For Marcia Langton, she may be saying reconciliation is dead for her. She no longer wants to reconcile with the Australian public. There's power in that and there's an absolute right to do that after spending a lifetime on the front lines, as Marcia has, fighting the fight to have this door slammed in her face. But
0: do you think... Most Australians, after this result, will feel still that they would like to engage in a reconciliation process. You say it's an individual thing. Obviously, there needs leadership there to put shape to it for people and to help people move along that spectrum. But has this re- has this result shown that we're not ready for that and has indeed the way this campaign was run you mentioned it before Indigenous Australians will have to come out those involved in the S23 and and the Uluru dialogues and come out and and answer for the fact that this went you know went down so badly you know did they get it wrong and did it set back the process of reconciliation healing whatever you want to call it between um, black and white Australians
1: I think when you have an entire generation of leaders like we have here uh, that have been burnt by this process, as, as my colleague Isabella Higgins put yesterday, an entire generation that have worked to get to this point being burnt and the young leaders coming up behind them, I think inevitably that sets back reconciliation. I've also had a number of discussions over the past year about the the voice treaty and truth statement. And the way that it was sequenced from Uluru was to go for voice first, to go for constitutional recognition, because that had been tried in the past and they felt that they could get this over the line. However, I think what we have seen play out and and when you say about detail and racism and all the discussions we've had here, the mis- and disinformation as well, we've seen a lack of licence, to recognise Indigenous people. Australians don't want to hand over that licence to say, yes, there were wrongs done, and and we need to atone for that in some way. The way that you do that is through truth-telling. And that's where my focus is going to be as a journalist, is is looking at the government and seeing whether they they commit, as they said, as Anthony Albanese said last year, to the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. That Makarata process of coming together after a struggle, as it is in the Yolini language, we need to see truth-telling happen in this country before we can progress with reconciliation because the fundamental understanding of what has happened is still not there. But as you say, Senator Price is already trying to take that off the table, isn't she? She is, but Senator Price is one voice in the federal parliament. She has certainly uh, positioned herself to be a firebrand politician who takes hardline views on things. Uh, She's also not in government, so she's free to raise her opinion if she wishes to do so. But I think what we have seen through this process is Senator Price is not broadly reflected by the Indigenous population. And that there are other voices there that are calling for these processes to be done, like Lydia Thorpe, like Linda Burney, uh, and like the Senator Malindiri McCarthy as well.
2: The other big part of this um, is, of course how to move forward um, in a way that kind of brings people together. Now, the Uluru process was an attempt at that, was actually, I know we forget this, I think, as we've watched this play out, but the biggest consensus we'd seen for a very long time, right? I wonder what your view is, Dana, based on speaking to, to people on on the ground. Noel Pearson went into this originally to try and find that radical centre. That's how we talked about it, the radical centre, to try and bring a black and white Australia together does this actually polarise the situation more? I mean, uh, Warren Mundine talked a lot about the only things you need to do is get a job and go to school and that should be the focus. But I suspect that's not the only thing that Indigenous Australia is going to be committed to doing.
1: No, and I think those those statements by Warren Mundine, and Warren Mundine certainly positions himself as, I've done it, therefore why can't you? And we need to actually unpack and investigate the layers of complexity in this argument around the Indigenous experience in Australia. My experience as somebody who grew up in Tasmania is entirely different to somebody who grew up in the Northern Territory or grew up, say, in the Torres Strait. So there's a level of unpacking that needs to be done there about one-size-fits-all approaches to Indigenous affairs. What we've heard resoundingly through this entire debate and, and actually have consensus on from the Federal Parliament is the current system doesn't work. What they are trying to do is come up with solutions to close the gap to improve outcomes for Indigenous people and it hasn't worked for the last 20 years. And now with the voice being shot down by the Australian public at a referendum... That power now sits again once with the parliament who hasn't been able to figure it out so far and we are now expecting them to come up with the solutions going forward. And I think as government, we do expect them to come up with some policy solutions and I suspect what we'll
0: see is perhaps not something overarching for a while, but, you know, individual cabinet ministers doing individual things like Mark Butler in health or um, Jason Clare is already moving in ed- education. I think Tanya Plebisek will do stuff on cultural issues, those sorts of things. But there will need to be some leadership from government here. But, of course, in the short term, Anthony Albanese is under a lot of pressure and, and Peter Dutton was already coming out saying the Prime Minister is not listening the millions of Australians who are concerned about cost of living. So this is going to be a very difficult thing for them to tread. But, but just finally, and you mentioned it several times, this notion of treaty, I just wonder what you think about The states now, many of the states have a treaty process in place. Uh, There's been some suggestion that South Australia's vote, which was surprisingly low, I think many people were surprised by that, given the lead their Premier took in the Yes debate. Um, You know, is that going to set back the process of treaty in that state? You know, they've got a legislated voice. Was that a vote against that? Do you think the treaty processes in the states will be derailed in any
1: way by this? I think it's unlikely. I think most of the treaty processes are really in their infancy stage, so there's a lot of room to shape what those look like. I think Victoria is the furthest along. They've had their Yurok U- Justice Commission, they have, which is a truth-telling, a truth-telling commission. Yeah. Then they have their representative body, the First People's Assembly, which speaks to the parliament and advises on treaty. And they're now starting to look at who will sit on uh, a, a treaty negotiation and who will speak for the individual clans and nations of Victoria. I don't think the national vote will do anything to de- derail that. And I think actually the other jurisdictions will be looking at Victoria to try and shape their own processes. It's interesting you mentioned South Australia. Someone in the campaign said to me uh, a week or so ago that they couldn't figure out why South Australia was behaving the way it was because they had this Mm. um, really uh, unifying moment when they passed the legislation for the voice. But then the the state government there parked it. They were supposed to have their state voice up and running before the referendum. And I think when they parked that and pushed it forward to next year, when they're going to have their first treaty... uh, first voice elections, I think in March, that created a lot of doubt in the minds of South Australians because they didn't have that example that they were told they were going to have by October 14 to make their mind up on. So what do you mean doubt? What people will start to worry about what it might look like or? I think so. They The, the whole selling point in South Australia, and I was there a lot over the course of the campaign, was the fact that you will have your state voice up and running by the time we have the referendum. You will see how this works and you'll see that there is nothing to fear and the fact that that got punted, uh, essentially by the government, delayed, I think that is part of the reason why so many South Australians went, oh, you know, we were told this was going to be simple at a state level and it hasn't been what are we going to do about this national thing?
2: Dana, um, it's been so great to have you on this Monday morning for this special edition looking over the referendum. It's a sort of time of great reflection I think for many Australians. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks Dana.
2: Well that's it for the party room for this special extra episode that we've recorded on this Monday morning looking at the referendum results.
0: Yep, it's been a a long and intense journey to get us here. The country's voted 60% of Australians voted no on referendum night. We'll be back with your regular party room on Thursday.
2: We certainly will. We'll be looking at the rest of the politics. It's a sitting week after all. Take care of yourselves and particularly for our First Nations listeners, we are thinking of you.
0: We are. See you PK.
2: See you friend.